Come Hello. on up. Hello. Welcome, welcome. How are you? Thanks for being here. <laughs> Thank you. All right. So last but certainly not least, uh, my friend Giener Ozgul, president and COO of Smart Care Equipment Solutions. Okay. So we've been talking a lot today about service differentiation, um, innovation, transformation, uh, we've talked about some of the challenges the pandemic brought, some of the um, now, you know, growth and new initiatives that have, have come out of the recovery from that, et cetera. And we're going to talk about um, the tenets of scalable service success. So before we get into that, tell everyone a little bit about you. Uh, Giener Osgul, as you mentioned, uh, President and Chief Operating Officer of Smart Care Equipment Solutions. We are... Um, the commercial side of kitchen repair, you had Matt up here earlier talking Whirlpool, that's residential. We do similar on the commercial side. So we service uh, commercial kitchen establishments. Uh, typically people equate those to restaurants. So there's a green check mark there, but um, our bigger end markets are actually non-commercial food service spaces. So if you think about like hospitals and universities and educational facilities, um, those are much larger end markets for us than the restaurants we all um, think about. Uh, we certainly service them, uh, but the uh, commercial food space is much bigger than just restaurants. Good. So um, we have talked quite a bit over the last few years um, about the journey that Smart Care has been on. Um, highly acquisitive organization, rapid growth, um, and... Uh, you know, working to keep pace with customer expectations and demands and also, you know, keeping um, pace with uh, digital um, right. sophistication, et cetera. Right. So so a lot of things have been uh, you've been at the helm <laughs> at the helm of. Um, and what I want to talk about today is, is sort of you're very focused on scalable service success. So as you grow, um, how do you scale the customer experience? How do you, how do you achieve repeatable success uh, in what you're doing? Um, and obviously customer experience is, is a huge factor in that, but what goes into that for you? What are sort of those foundational elements? Yeah, so you know, we start with the customer need assessment and each customer is a little different. Each of these end markets has different needs. Uh, so if we think about quick service restaurants, so your McDonald's of the world, uh, that customer's needs is speed, right? Because they are, they are serving a lot of customers and they're moving through it. So any um, equipment down or outage impacts their ability to produce product, right? So speed is really important to them. Whereas in an educational facility, uh, HACCP procedures around food safety and temperature checks and things like that on their menu, are paramount because they can't afford anyone to get sick, especially when, you know, we, one of the um, school districts we service does 40,000 meals a day. And not, you know, so that's more important than the speed is I have to make sure that all the food that I'm putting in these children's mouths is safe to eat, right? So, mm -hmm. um, so we start with the customer and then we build our processes back against that. Mm -hmm. um, and then we use our systems to support that. So if I take the uh, McDonald's example, again, 
Um, we will build a SLA or a service level agreement with the end customer based on their pieces of equipment that they want to see repaired within not only a response time, but also uh, how long it takes to actually fix the piece of equipment. And, and we build that into our process and then put that into our system, right? Mm -hmm. So what we try to do from a scalability standpoint, and we partnered with IFS back in 2019, um, was we wanted a system that we could, as much as we could, take our process and systematize it so that we could get scale out of it. So we we take the essentially the the air of human interaction of whether or not the SLA should be met or not be met away and let the system drive the expectation because that's what the process says we should be doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so Jorge, you know, you, you spoke this morning about sort of the work you're doing to set that foundation. That's really the work that you did in, in 2019, essentially, that's right. right? And so, you know, we, we talked at one point about the fact that, you know, step one is sort of this setting the foundation, mm -hmm. getting everyone on a platform from which, you know, everyone has access to the same insights. You're taking some of that, um, you know, non-automated friction yes. out of the process. Um, and then talk a little bit about, you know, what you see going forward in terms of now that you've done the foundational piece, what will come next in terms of, you know, better leveraging now the pool of data that you have yeah. and, and what you can do uh, from that point on? Yeah, you know, <clears throat> there is thousands of service providers in our space across the country. Not many of scale, but many service providers. Uh, so the differentiation of service itself, you know, um, I give our technicians a lot of credit and I like to say we we are as good or better than our competitors in terms of delivering that last mile of service. But the points of differentiation, when you get really good, become harder to delineate between yourself and a competitor. So then for us, it's how do we take that next step? Well, the next step for us is data. Mm -hmm. um, we are going at our scale, we have tripled the business in five years in terms of revenue and customers. And um, we continue to do that year on year. And what that enables for us is roughly, you know, a half million to three quarters of a million work orders completed a year. Mm -hmm. That type of data aggregation and helping customers who this is a major capital investment for them. Mm -hmm. They are spending somewhere between twenty five and two hundred thousand dollars for a piece of equipment. It's, mm -hmm. it's really expensive. Um, we can use that data then to help guide them in their buying process on repair, replace decisions on predictive or prescriptive maintenance versus reactive maintenance, uh, data enables and unlocks a lot of that to happen. And so, you know, uh, I, I always get to ask the question, well, that all sounds good, but it can be snake oil and vaporware and is this all real and does it work? Um, the answer is yes. You know, we, we did a pilot of a couple of markets uh, two years ago took all our data and said, if we put it into kind of an AI or machine learning environment, what would it tell us about predictive or prescriptive breakage? Um, so we used ice machines in our case study because everybody has an ice machine. All ice machines need to be cleaned. So it's something that was consistent across all market segments and customers. Um, and we didn't clean any of the data, so we didn't do any of the scrubbing or the governance, or we just said, we're gonna put it all in and see what this machine uh, does. So over three months, um, in two states, Texas and Florida, because we wanted to pick states where the ice machine breakage was high because the usage is high. Um, 
it accurately predicted seven out of 10 ice machines being broke the next month in the location. And um, within the seven out of 10, five out of 10, it actually predicted the part failure as well. So, um, and that's without, again, without cleaning and scrubbing and actually building process around it. So uh, it's a long way to answer your question to say, we, we really feel that there's a lot of power in dif mm -hmm. data differentiation. And those are just, some, that's just one use case. Um, the second use case, uh, besides the, you know, there's three use cases. One is the customer that I just described. The second is really driving efficiency back to the business. Mm -hmm. And we've talked a lot about efficiency today. So uh, very aligned with that. The third is using the data to help drive back that knowledge to your technicians, right? How do you create knowledge-based tools that add scale? Um, your senior technicians have their little note, notepad here in their pocket, and it's 20 years of knowledge, right, that they've written down. You know, how do you get it from here to somewhere in a centralized database that you can share with the technician that just got released out of training two months ago? Mm -hmm. um, so we're really focused on that. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, with the acquisitions you do, yep. right, you're kind of multiplying or compounding change management, right? Oh, yes. Because you 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 introduced uh, a new system a few years ago. You got everyone on the same page, and and you're good. But then you're bringing new people on, bringing new people on. How do you kind of handle that on an ongoing basis so that it isn't too disruptive to the business or to them? Um, so we have a dedicated integration team, mm -hmm. which helps, right? Because you have resources assigned to a specific task. Uh, but um, on that specifically, we work, um, we put a lot of work and effort into understanding the businesses that we acquire before we integrate them into our process and our system. And we begin with process first. And the reason is, is some of these businesses actually have best practices that are better than our own. Mm -hmm. So we, you know, we set aside the we're better than everyone that we buy approach. What we say is, hey, if they're doing something that we should be doing, let's take that on, build it into our process, and then ultimately put that into the system as we integrate them. And then we get immediate buy-in, right? Because now we've centralized their process. You know, we bought a business. One of the first businesses we bought was in Birmingham, Alabama back in early 2018. And um, they had a really good defined dispatch process, even better than our, our platform businesses. Mm -hmm. We have taken probably half of their best practices and incorporated them in the last couple of years into our process, just because it's so good, right? Um, and they're scheduled to actually they're a larger entity, so we haven't put them on uh, our system yet, mm -hmm. but they are scheduled for mid next year to go onto our system. And we feel really good that because we've been on this, you know, recognizing their best practices and bringing them into our system, the cutover of bringing them into our system should be smoother because uh, now they have immediate buy-in that we've recognized and respected their culture and what makes it special. Yeah. No, I think that's really good. And and looking at it from the perspective of, you know, having the ability to learn from these businesses, not just, you know, automatically put them into. Okay, so when we talk about scalability, um, another huge topic has to be talent and talent development. Um, and, you know, a lot of the themes that come up there. So how does that, um, what does that look like for smart care? What are some of the trends that you're seeing, challenges you're working through, et cetera? 
So our, our biggest, um, our biggest workforce at Smart Care is our technicians. They make up two thirds of our entire workforce because mm -hmm. they, they are what we're putting in front of our end customers every day. So I'll, I'll speak to them and then kind of the general, um, for the technicians, our biggest challenge has been the onboarding and training process. I was talking about this a little earlier with somebody, uh, especially in that year one, uh, because as we were coming out of COVID, you know, we had this hockey stick that happened, right? Everyone thought it'd be a gradual recovery and it actually, for most commercial businesses, a hockey stick. And um, our managers were rushing to get technicians in the field to accommodate the volume pickup. And um, we had a lot of turnover on, on year one technicians. They were leaving uh, because our onboarding and training experience, frankly, wasn't very good because it consisted of some qualitative view of some local manager or dispatcher saying this person is ready to go and run service calls. Um, so we've walked our because way. Because we really need them today. Because we really need <laughs> yeah. them right now. So the last year, we spent a lot of time and energy building an onboarding and training process and pulling in the technicians for that. So each of our markets has what we call a district field trainer, which is a seasoned technician. Mm -hmm. That technician is you know, the buddy of that new hire, but more importantly, they're the one that's going to release them to be able to do work or not. Not mm -hmm. the manager, not the dispatcher, not anyone else, not even myself in the organization. Uh -huh. That technician is, is driving the accountability of that. And we get the buy-in then from the technician group that this person's ready and the specificity of the feedback the technician can also give. Like they can only work in these three mm -hmm. pieces of equipment and do it well. Uh, so we follow that and our technology tools help us enforce that because we assign skill competencies within our dispatch tool within PSO. Um, we can actually only assign the skills that they have and they can't be dispatched to anything else, right? So it creates a little bit of a, a good blocker mm -hmm. and we have improved our uh, technician retention rate of year one technicians by almost 50% this year. It's astounding, even to me. Mm -hmm. I'm very skeptical and our, our CPO and I have one-on-ones and I always say, you know, we should double check that number because I'm a little worried that it's a little <laughs> overstated. Um, and with the general population, it's been, you know, pay them what they deserve to be paid. You know, we, we all have this trepidation to pay people what they deserve to be paid. Pay them what they deserve to be paid and set the expectations very clearly for them for success, right? And enable their success. And if they don't deliver on the, on the pay that you paid them, then that's a separate conversation of accountability. But don't, you know, I, I'm not one for the carrot, you know, I will give you a thousand dollars and I'll give you another thousand dollars if you do something right. Mm -hmm. I'm more like, just give them the $2,000 and help them be successful. Mm -hmm. And if they're not the right person, then they're probably not the right person at a thousand or $2,000, mm -hmm. they're just not the right person, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I say compensate them well, because it's hard to overcome culture if the compensation is right to begin with, right? Because that person feels they're undervalued immediately. So that's something really important for me. For the rest of our group, we really focus on that. Um, and I drive a fair amount of push of uh, intercommunication of those groups. Mm -hmm. um, one of the first questions I always ask when something comes to me, whether it be a steering committee meeting or a process improvement meeting, is I'll say, well, did you communicate with finance or did you communicate with supply chain and get their input on this or sign off on this if it's applicable? And if the answer is no, I say, well, then I don't really have a lot to add because if your coworkers aren't 
aligned with you, then my alignment is kind of irrelevant, right? Uh, my alignment is the team is aligned, this is a solution, and I support that and mm -hmm. help them be successful. Yeah. The other thing we talked a, a bit about, so um, we, so the onboarding and, and training, which is yep. obviously having a huge impact that you are <laughs> wanting to, to double check. Um, but the other thing we talked about is, you know, the idea of career progression mm. um, in service, right? And how that might be evolving going forward. So the fact that, you know, and, and I fully agree with you on yep. pay people what they're worth. At the same time, we know that for today's talent, it isn't just about dollars the way, you know, it once was, there's these other elements. And, and one of those is they want the ability, some want the ability to progress. They want to know what that progression could look like, et cetera. So what are you doing to sort of you know, keep pace with what things look like today, but also start mapping out, you know, the, the evolution of, of what the role is, is looking like going forward and what those progression steps might be. Yeah. So for our technician base, the way I think about it is the progression for them is two buckets. One is the bucket of technicians that are happy in their current roles and they really don't want to do something else. Mm -hmm. Uh, but you can't forego them either, right? So you have to think no, about what the them. answer yeah. is for them. And then there's the progression for the technicians who want to be more in the organization, mm -hmm. right? So for the first bucket, um, what we do with them is, hey, what is a training path to help them hone their skills and feel energized every single year, right? Mm -hmm. So we, we work with their managers on kind of a, a development that's customized that we track in our LMS systems, uh, for that first bucket of technicians that every year we're improving their skills because they want that, right? Mm -hmm. They're like, just because I only want to be a technician, and I always say, I correct them when they say only. Right. Um, I'm very clear with them to say, we need to still train them and make them the best technician possible in the business, right? And make them feel good about coming to work every day. With the other technicians, we've created a number of different career paths, right? So. Um, you can obviously grow in your technician career all the way to this district field trainer mm -hmm. that I talked about. So you start in as an apprentice and you can grow to district field trainer. Um, we also have a training group that's, that's primarily made up of former technicians that does classroom and field training specifically with technicians. So they feel good that they have this like training path they can join. We have um, allowed technicians to become district field sales representatives. I mean, they, they know the product, they know the customer. So we teach them the sales skills um, that they need to know and how to present them well. And then uh, finally, there's a subset of technicians that just want to go into field service operations, right? So they can start off as a service manager and work with their way up in the operations group. So mm -hmm. we've been very clear to map out each one of those for our technicians so they feel that this is an organization that no matter what path they take, they can feel supported and mm -hmm. get successful. Yeah, and they have choice. And they have choice. Which is important. Now, when, when Matt was up, he was talking about how um, they work to sort of nurture that entrepreneurial spirit that the independent service providers have. It made me think of a conversation you and I had about how you um, look for and figure out what to do with talent that you or mm. others think has very high potential. So people that are, you know, maybe more innovative, maybe higher drive, et cetera. How do you, what, what should leaders look for in recognizing that? And then how do you maybe 
put them on a different path or fast track them in some way or, or make sure that they don't get bored or, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, it's fun. There's this group of individuals in the organization that uh, I like to keep my eye on with my direct reports and Al is my VP of IT standing over there and he knows that, Hi, you know, we, <laughs> we talk about, we talk about this with my direct reports, like who are the bright stars I call them mm -hmm. in the organization or who are the ones I should be on the lookout for. And then I proactively like to reach out to them and just talk to them. Not sometimes not about anything specific, like just what's their experience? Like, what are we doing in the organization I should know about? And then sometimes in those conversations, they give you something you know, a little spark, you know, we should go improve parts this way. And then you say, well, tell me more about that. And then you have a little more conversation on it. And you're like, you know, they have a pretty interesting idea. So then I, I take them and I'll put them on a little bit of a discovery special project and mm -hmm. empower them to go do that. And they may be, may or not, may not be in that work stream function. And that's less relevant to me. I just want to give them an opportunity to go do something in shine and and if it works out, it could become a, it evolves to something a little more permanent for them, right? Mm -hmm. If it doesn't work out, I just like the fact that I'm giving them an opportunity to show us what they have, a competency of creative thinking mm -hmm. that they have and bring it more broadly to the organization. And I, and I do keep track of those. I mean, we had a, a, a very uh, young, talented woman who left because her husband moved to Iowa because uh, he got a job out there a couple of years ago and she recently moved back to the Twin Cities and now she's working for us on the health team again. I kept my eye on her and uh, it was really, is a fun conversation because as soon as I learned she had moved back, I, I, um, I sent Al a note and I said, hey, you know, you should reach out to Kathleen. She's got a lot of potential. She left the organization on good terms. She had to move. I'd really like her back in the organization because she was one of those like mm -hmm. sparks that we had. And of course, Al interviewed her and calls me the next day and says, wow, um, yeah, we're bringing her on board, you know, and I, I feel really good about those folks. I mean, they need an opportunity. One of our uh, VPs of service on the uh, specialty side, which handles coffee for us, mm -hmm. um, he, I hired him as a materials planner and supply chain 10 years ago, and now he's running all of service on our specialty division. So mm -hmm. it's, it's really cool to find them in there and work with them. Yeah. And it's also a fun part of, of being rapidly growing. You yep. know, there's a lot of opportunities for you to watch for those shining stars and help them, you know, progress. Can you, um, how would you describe the importance of culture in scalable success? Very important. And culture for us, you know, we, you said we do acquisitions. So we um, spun out of a company here in the Twin Cities called Ecolab back in 2017. So we were part of a corporate environment for roughly 20 years or so. Um, and we spun out to be independent and we immediately started doing acquisitions to scale our business up. Right. And um, of course, the culture we had was a culture that was very Ecolab. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's nothing wrong with it, but it wasn't our culture. It was an Ecolab culture. Um, and what we learned in our first few acquisitions was our culture will always be evolving. As long as we continue to do acquisitions, our culture can never be stagnant. Mm -hmm. um, so the scalability of our culture has to be, here's what our culture is today. We just bought these two or three organizations. What does that do to our existing culture and how does that move now mm -hmm. as we bring these organizations into our own? Mm -hmm. um, so 
it's it's a ongoing resolve to revisit the, that culture and that statement for mm -hmm. us, right? Um, but it, there are tenants within that uh, things like safety. There, you know, we're very resolute on mm -hmm. um, integrity. We're very resolute on um, you know, quality of service is something we're really we have a lot of passion on. So there are tenants within that. But we allow ourselves the flexibility to evolve our walk culture as we buy more and more businesses. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned, you know, really just in passing, one of the things that I know you value a lot, which is not only communication, but listening. Yep. You know, and I think that's really important because the leaders that are doing the most to, you know, stay in tune with not here's not what I want our culture to be. So let me just assume that's what it is. Right. Yes, yeah. But we have these objectives. What, what, how do people really feel? Right. Like what is it, is it hitting the mark? Um, what can we be doing better? You know, the people that are having those conversations have the most opportunity to, you know, get the transparency, make the people you're talking to feel valued, but also course correct and continually improve. Yeah, lots of questions. Um, I have to watch it because that's a little bit of my blind spot too. I was in one of our breakout groups. I mentioned that, um, that sometimes if you're the leader that asks a lot of questions, it can intimidate people in a room. So mm -hmm. I have to be a little careful, but a lot of times I ask questions because I want to learn mm -hmm. a lot about the organization because that really drives the decision-making process for myself. And, um, you know, to what you said is right. For me, that's really important, mm -hmm. really utmost important. So listen to the teams and hear what they're saying. Um, and oftentimes you might think you're hearing them, but you're not. So I, I do do a lot of playbacks for myself. Mm -hmm. um, here's what you said and here's what I heard. I, I'll even say it like that just to make sure the person's acknowledging that that's correct or not correct, right? So you said you know, we do a really bad job of stocking parts. <laughs> um, what I heard is um, we need to probably think about what our planning parameters should be, mm -hmm. right? Because you're giving me the output of an, and I'm giving you the upstream of where we should go work. And if, if they agree, then I feel like I have good direction. Yeah. If they disagree, it's good because then I can get to what they're really trying to say. Right. And um, I like to get them there so that they feel like I'm, I'm hearing them. Yeah. And so you know what the real, that's right. The real deal is. Okay. So we talked recently about the fact that, you know, like everyone, you had your challenges during the pandemic and now you're, you're at a point of stability, yep. which, um, probably feels pretty good. Um, but also you mentioned, you know, that puts you in a position where you need to be looking at organizational structures the quality of the people you have uh, in each of those structures and making sure that with that stability, you're not getting complacent and that you are continually improving. So what does that look like for, for you and for Smart Care? Yeah, I'll give you an example. So last summer, right about this time, um, we had gotten to kind of a scale in the recovery where my old kind of operational leadership structure was um, showing some fractures and the fractures were showing up in lapses in customer communication and service delivery and some of the culture and turnover I talked about earlier. Um, those to me were all outputs and indicative of a scale problem we had, right? Uh, not necessarily that the leaders I had in the organization were bad. Um, some of them had some opportunities to be quite frank, um, but more so that 
I hadn't stepped back to the organization and say, okay, this is an organization that now has twice the volume that it did at the onset of COVID. Mm -hmm. And yet it still retains the organizational structure of what it did during COVID. Mm -hmm. So I stepped back and reorganized the, or the service teams and really had two objectives in doing that, which is how do we personalize our connection with the technician? And how do we personalize our connection with the local customer? Mm -hmm. I wanted to bring local feel back to the organization because we had to stretch during COVID. Um, so we redesigned the organizational structure in the fall, um, brought on two new VPs of service ex externally. So I needed some talent, some new mm -hmm. talent in with some ideas um, and some thought process. And um, I also aligned the acquisitions to the service leaders. So in the past, they were aligned to either an integration manager or myself. I didn't feel like I was giving those acquisitions the time they needed to like feel like they were part of the culture. Mm -hmm. um, so I aligned them to kind of a service leader who could be more observant, give them the time, meet with them, help them understand their needs and bring them into the organization in the right way. Yeah. I'm thinking about the fact that, you know, after a period of time where there was so much change that, you know, we weren't choosing, right? Um, now that things are a bit more stable, uh, we run the risk of avoiding change because we're tired of it, mm -hmm. um, which could be detrimental to forward progress. Um, so how do you kind of navigate that yourself? Um, I have... In recent months, specifically, um, I have taken an approach when there's what I'll call a, a really big problem usually shows, we all call them that, and we know what they are because they suck up a lot of our energy. So if you start seeing lots of conference calls and phone calls on something, it usually means the process itself is strained for whatever reason. Um, so I, I've kind of taken an approach for myself to kind of step back. So when I start getting pulled into a lot of meetings on something, now I want, you know, I might pause at some point as opposed to just going to all those meetings and doing the firefighting. Mm -hmm. I'll step back and say, okay, can we get the right people in the room and have a more holistic discussion about this, right? Because all these meetings are telling me there's some other problem in this, mm -hmm. um, whether that be scale or culture, and we're not stepping our way back to go solve that problem. Mm -hmm. And um, that has been with intent I've been asking the team to do that um, a lot. And, it, you know, like I'll just give an example. Showed up in one of our product sprints. Um, our finance team had been trying to accommodate a work in progress uh, accrual problem we've been having for almost a year. And um, I don't know, we've done six sprints on it. And I just felt like we kept putting the fire out on this thing. Mm -hmm. And finally, um, I just, I, I called our CFO and I called our leader of uh, finance and I said, I'm putting the brakes on this. The team needs to come together and understand what is the solution they want, what is the output they're looking for, build those requirements, and then come back to the technical team so we can solve this. Because mm -hmm. otherwise, you know, doing it iteratively with failure yeah. in perpetuity never really gets you the solution, mm -hmm. but it also frustrates everybody. Yeah. Uh, with the time it takes. So, I mean, that's something yeah. I have a lot of conviction around recently, like that continuous improvement. Yeah, that's good. It's also the, you know, going back to the first thing we talked about with the data, right? You're also at the early stages of not only having that, but 
looking at all of the ways you can leverage that. So that frontline role is really shifting not just to be you know, a mechanical or a, a hands-on role, but uh, a knowledge worker role right. where they're going to consult with the restaurants on, you know, maybe it's it's usage scenarios, maybe it's, um, you know, peak times and how to better, you know, there there's a lot more to it that fits that experience story right. than just the machine itself and is it or isn't it working, so. Yeah, it's, you know, we've seen in the data, uh, as an example, customers, some customers have, undersize the equipment that they purchase, mm -hmm. right? So they know that they need a lot of ice because they're a bar mm -hmm. and they've gone and bought the smallest ice machine and they're always constantly running out of ice. Go get a bucket of ice, go get a bucket of but ice. I work more, in, in the restaurant yeah, industry but, for a long time. More importantly, the ice machine is running so hard that the breakage yeah. happens more yeah. often, right? So if you teach them the buying behavior of, hey, you know, what do you expect the business volume for you to be? It, I expect it to be this. Okay, you should buy an ice machine that fits that, mm -hmm. right? Not go to a dealer and say, well, that's $1,000 less than the step up. And then you, you know, what little you save on the front end on mm -hmm. the capital purchase itself, you're more than going to pay for on the repair because you've undersized. And, yeah. and so we, we like the fact that we, we can help them provide value for that. Mm -hmm. Yep. So you can report to uh, your same stations as the morning in four minutes. Okay. Thank you so much.